This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. So we've been talking about the freelance economy for the last few weeks and why more people are freelancing and how it will change both the way we think about work and the impact on the economy. But any conversation about freelancing in the U.S. quickly comes back to what employees give up when they choose independent work. Benefits. Health insurance, unemployment insurance, paid vacation, paid sick leave, paid parental leave, retirement savings, and more are still mostly tied to an employer. The future of work is flexible. By 2027, it's estimated that more than half of the workforce will be freelancing. And yet, for many, benefits still yoke them to a single employer. There has been a growing movement by both labor advocates and businesses to make a common safety net of benefits portable. So what would portable benefits look like and what will it take to get there? Joining me to discuss the future of portable benefits is Sarah Horowitz. Sarah is the founder and former executive director of the Freelancers Union and the founder of the Mutualist Society. She's also an author whose most recent book is Mutualism, Building the Next Economy from the Ground Up. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So you founded the Freelancers Union over 25 years ago. How has the freelance economy changed in that time? I think that we now know almost like a common sense feeling that the way we work is just so different. And so 25 years ago, freelancing for many people was a euphemism for being unemployed. I think now people are realizing freelancing is the way we all are at least going to work at some points in our lives. And so I'd say it's pretty normal now. But I think what is so clear is while it's so normal for millions of Americans, we still have not adapted to it in terms of how we support workers in America. And so actually, I feel like in the last 25 years, I'm still seeing the same things in that regard you're kind of having the same conversations or making the same arguments. Do you feel like we are still, you know, when people think of a job, they think the same traditional nine to five, which whoever works nine to five, salaried 40 hours a week, work at one employer and then retire from them. And that wasn't probably the case 25 years ago, but increasingly isn't the case now, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that really what we're seeing is that, We are all working in these different ways. We really need a different way to set things up. We've seen companies and organizations adapt so much in terms of how we actually get work. But what we really haven't seen any real change on is insurance, social protections. And I think really sadly that the for-profit largest companies have a lock in keeping especially insurance, the way it has always been. And that's where we still need to see political change and cultural change. Yeah, health insurance is probably the biggest one, right? When when people think about keeping their, their salaried job, that's usually the biggest reason why. But of course, that's not the only benefit. There's a lot of, you know, kind of these social safety net 
that are tied to private employers, like paid sick leave, paid parental leave, retirement benefits. You know, and we did see a little bit of a shift in that in the pandemic. And I'd be interested to hear what your perspective is on how the pandemic impacted the freelance economy and impacted kind of the landscape of portable benefits because there were those like short-term emergency acts that covered things like paid sick leave. Yeah. I mean, I think that really the debate is this. Do you enable this new workforce to set up a new paradigm of benefits and accept that it'll have a different actuarial basis, that you need new regulations and new ways of doing things? Or do you say, this is a universal approach and freelancers are no different than anybody else. So as human beings, people need to get these benefits. And I think what we saw with the pandemic was the second one. So freelancers did better because we enabled freelancers to get the same benefits as everybody else. And shockingly, it shouldn't be like this, but that was pretty amazing. And that's where I think freelancers did so much better. But I do feel like we keep toggling between these two arguments that is really preventing us from moving forward. And it's not an easy left-right split, actually, because you find a lot of progressive Democrats really don't want to tackle the first issue of the changing workforce. And of course, you have a lot of conservatives who do not want universal financing of a lot of these benefits. And so I think we're seeing that split, that 50-50 that is just holding us back as a country. So what is that split? I mean, I think knowing how politically divided we are and knowing the kind of arguments that the right tends to make against the specter of of assuming something socialism and you can't have these things, but like, what is the argument for keeping benefits tied to a private employer? Doesn't it seem kind of best for capitalism to have everybody being able to be entrepreneurial and, and like freelance and do their own thing without having to be tied to a, you know, a certain employer, it seems like kind of the American spirit, right? You want everybody to be able to strike out on their own. What's the argument against portable benefits? One thing I'm just tempted to, to say right here is I really think we as Americans are getting kind of sick of a small percentage of the left and right kind of dictating everything for all mm. of us. And I think this is the era of well-being. It's the era of really thinking about how we take care of not just ourselves, but other people in really common sense ways. So I think what we really need to do is start like as if we were doing a giant whiteboarding session for America. And we said, like, the truth is that people really are moving around and their lives and incomes are more episodic and anxiety-filled than ever before. And the truth is that they'd really like to get their benefits and other things they care about through the organizations they trust, whether it is their mutual aid society, their faith community, their employer, their union, their cooperative, and we should just attach the benefits and rights and protections to those organizations then we don't have to have a fight about whether it all comes from government or whether it all comes for the for-profit sector. And then I think we just have to recognize that there has to be some basic universal because there's just no way around it. And it, we can be so much more creative. And I'll give you an example. 
we could really start to think about how we deliver care on a primary basis, meaning somebody that you just need to talk to, who could be a physician's assistant, a nurse practitioner, lay people who can help you think about your diet, to check in on you in your neighborhood. You know, these are just all basic things and they just are the truth. And we should just kind of go back to that. And I think sometimes we should get out of our political fight because that doesn't help us. I think ironically, the people who are the quote experts here are holding us all back. And we should go back to a use case of what people actually need and start to architect it from there. So there's a lot in what you just said that I want to kind of break apart. I think, you know, maybe the first thing since we mentioned the the shift during the pandemic and how these emergency acts that came up during the pandemic were kind of revolutionary in that, you know, freelancers finally did get some paid sick leave, finally did were able to get unemployment. Did this shift public sentiment at all? Like w- before the pandemic, were people feeling kind of that it needed to be more traditional and and seeing that this, you know, obviously freelancers themselves loved it. Has it shifted overall public sentiment? Is there a move towards wanting um, wanting these things to be not tied to employers? Yes. I mean, I think for sure people really felt that for the first time, freelancers were actually able to get paid as freelancers for the work that they did in terms of getting support and income to reflect your freelance income. And that was a game changer. But I think that we don't really mobilize as much as we should as workers in this country. And when I say workers, I mean low-wage workers, professional workers, white workers, black workers, BIPOC workers. All workers are workers. And we tend to think in these kind of campaign advocacy style strategies And what we really have to do is actually build our own local institutions that reflect what we think and keep track of how our elected officials vote and hold them accountable on issues as workers. That would be our health insurance, our unemployment insurance. That would be how we get our training. Why on earth can't the faith-based community provide training where people will feel secure, they'll help their neighbors, but we lock it in through the Department of Labor, through employers, we set that up and we will not move. But freelancers get their training on the on the fly. They do it themselves. Um, why can't they get it through their professional associations? So if we could just unlock a lot of these programs and start to realize that people mutualistically are already organized in their communities and those communities are the large, logical place to start. So I think it's what I'm really saying is it's a frame change. And while freelancers got something really helpful during the pandemic, all these things are going to be one-offs if we don't actually reframe how we're organized both economically and politically and get out of the 50-50 fight that the Democrats and the Republicans are having. Because as workers, we break bread and we need to come together and give up some of the other fights that we want to have and have them on Twitter, but come together for the things that we can agree on. This is such an interesting perspective that I think a lot of people haven't considered because I think a lot of people think in in these two ways, right? And you say 50-50 Republican-Democrat, but I think also the other kind of 50-50 way that, that people are thinking about things is the private sector and the public sector. Like either the government 
figures it out and it's a government social safety net program or it's through a private employer. But you're talking about a lot of different organizations like mutual aid societies and community work. Can you explain a little bit more how that would actually work in in something like a portable benefits landscape? Yeah. So first of all, what really happened was after the late 1960s, the left started to think that everything good had to come from government and really abandon the mutualist sector. So bad on the left for that. Stop saying that everything good has to come from government. And the right started attacking unions and uh, social programs and really damaged the mutualist sector. So bad on the right for that. But the truth is that the organizations that people really feel rooted in are the organizations that they choose to be in, that they're connected to, and there is zero reason why you can't redeploy flows of money that the government is already spending and enable these groups to start participating. And I'll give you a really good example, I think, which is after a natural disaster, we deploy a whole workforce. Socket Sonai and the Resilience Corps have been working on this. And one of the things that they know and we have seen is that mutual aid immediately crops up. People go to their church. They find out which neighbor needs medication. They help each other get food. They develop in a very American de Tocquevillian way, a very rich network of infrastructure in the first few months. Right after that, FEMA comes in. They say, okay, that's so great. Oh my God, that's so wonderful what you've done. Thanks so much. And then they outsource it all to the for-profit sector. So there's no reason why we have to do this, except we know that the lobbyists of those companies are going to not love this idea because America is very tied to our lobbying infrastructure as well that locks in things. But the truth is, conceptually, we actually could take 2% of that money and say, every time there's a natural disaster, we want to see 2% of all FEMA money going to cooperatives. We want to see that money going to training through credit unions. We want to see the mutual aid groups be able to have a template. And that gives us a very important architectural tool for portable benefits, which is this. When you go and the distributed ledger and blockchain, we are so already moving in this direction, can keep track of how people are going from place to place and job to job. They can keep track of when somebody is on disability. There's just no reason that we can't say that we actually have the technology infrastructure and benefits can be kept track of by being able to access them through your faith group through your mutual aid group, through your union, through your cooperative. And then you could imagine all these ways that we can distribute a lot of government programs through procurement to these groups because the money is already going there. And this would galvanize our democracy again, make people so much more connected to one another, which we know affects anxiety, addiction, and economic development. And so I actually think this isn't that far away and it's actually not that hard to do, but we have to get out of our current frame. So I'm interested in 
where this is is happening or where you see progress being made, I think, you know, on a macro level, everybody, you know, knows about the Affordable Care Act. Everybody has maybe heard some state-by-state paid sick leave laws. Are there places that, you know, either communities or states or governments, smaller governments, state governments that are making what you're speaking of a reality or finding sort of a middle ground? Yes. I'd say the state of Colorado. The governor is ahead of everybody. In Colorado, you have a community of people that are starting to really reimagine how you can use the distributed ledger decentralized autonomous organizations. The cooperative movement is flourishing there. They have been the ones who are really leading the way. And I'm so shocked, like so much is happening in Colorado. But I would say that it's happening where people are trying new things Mutual aid, I think, is really showing us, you know, not just in the United States. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, that's immediately how people started organizing to help people to find out about their friends and relatives and families. Uh, So you can see it internationally. I would say also, sadly, you know, the United States used to really be such a leader in these things, but I really see it in Latin America, in places like Argentina in South Africa, uh, Indonesia. And you can see that in places where the government has just abdicated its responsibility, people are just self-organizing. And I think anyone who's ever built anything knows that you start with how people are organically building things, because that's probably going to show you how to build something. And I think what we keep doing is having policy people in Washington who've literally never built anything in their lives coming up with political solutions that literally don't work. I mean, I remember when the ACA was first launched and the exchange just kept failing and they could have very easily done what I'm saying by enabling groups to be on the exchange and get the same privileged position as employers. And there was no imagination for that. And it hasn't been for the Republicans since. So nobody gets a gold star here. Um, They just have stayed in our two-lane highway that's kind of not going very far. So I think, you know, this is such a, a different way to think about things than most people have. Like, as I said, it's, you know, the thinking is usually private sector or public sector or the government figures it out. And a lot of the examples that you've been giving, those resonate with people when when you talk about a crisis, like mutual aid societies that have popped up after natural disasters or during the pandemic. How do these sorts of mutual aid groups function in a long term? Because you think about like your health insurance, you're going to need it for your entire life. Your retirement benefits, you'll need for the rest of your life. Your sick pay, like if it's dis tangled from your employer, how exactly would these groups help make it be a benefit that can go with you forever rather than help you in a time of a crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think that really what this is teeing up is a profound new role of an activist government. The activist government enables these groups. They're measured by that. You are a mayor. We want to know how many mutualist organizations, and by that I mean faith communities, unions, cooperative, mutual aid groups, 
how many grew in your area and how many people got benefits and how satisfied were they? But instead of us just focusing on these individuals, which is what we do in America, government to the individual, you now have a whole range of intermediation of faith leaders, of union leaders, of cooperative leaders, of mutual aid leaders, and their communities having a way to say what is working. And so I think to answer your question, it's really saying that there's an important role that government plays in financing, in procurement, in distribution, and that needs to just be adapted. And that's okay because we're working off playbooks that were from the 1930s. And believe me, I love FDR, but the FDR administration is now like, it's not with us anymore. And so we really have to say in this next era, in this time of transformation, why on earth can't we imagine that we'll actually go back to some pretty old fashioned institutions that have served us since the beginning of our country and that government's job will be to see that they flourish, not to replace them. And that provides the consistency, that provides the funding, that provides the learning, the evolution. There will be new groups. And I think that's really important. And so what can our listeners do? So a lot of our listeners are business leaders or employees themselves. And I'm assuming that for a lot of people, this sounds intriguing and interesting and promising, but it also seems like, well, what can I do to make it it happen? Well, I think the first thing is to start to realize that you're in a mutualist network. So literally think about where you live. And think about where you work, think about your company, think about your organization and start to say, what are the mutual aid groups near me? What are the faith communities? Where are the credit unions? Where are the cooperatives? Where are the unions? And just start to see that you are in that network. And then I think one thing is to start to realize that you can be more mutualistic. You don't have to start at 100%. So start to have those conversations with your staff, with yourself, with your colleagues, in your professional association, in your community group, start to ask your elected officials, like, what are you doing to grow these? And then starting to assign them jobs that they can do and start to say, like, for instance, we're having an election coming up in November. Let's organize a candidate night and ask them what they're going to do to grow these organizations. Do they have a point of view about why everything is going from an employer. And then start educating your community about what that elected official is saying. And if they're just telling you the usual, like it should be a for-profit, individualized, private sector approach, and it's working, well, we know that's not working. It's working for nobody. On the other hand, if they say, well, let's just wait for the government to do this for everybody, we say, but the Democrats are probably going to lose the House in November, so I don't believe you. So what are we going to do right now and what can we start to do across the aisle to get some groups the ability to start moving this? And I guess, you know, relatedly, like if you are a business leader, it sounds kind of gross to say it, but like what's in it for you? What's the business case for wanting to disentangle benefits from the private sector? Well, I cannot imagine that there's one employer out there that thinks the benefit system is working for their employees 
you know, not to, I mean, we already know they're freelancers. The freelancers are really not getting anything, but that's not ever been the responsibility of employers. The system is broke. And we know that people are just having the insurance that is not supporting them, that people are really anxious. I think the, the great resignation is showing us also that people really are having, at best, mixed feelings about work. And you know, I think it's really important in life to have an oeuvre and that work that can be your, what you do. And it doesn't matter what work you actually do, but work is so tremendously meaningful for people and organizing. And I think if employers start to talk about that and recognize that we are whole human beings and people are in like, and I, I think if I were an employer, what's in it for me is to show that I understand what people's lives are like. And I would just say one other thing. I think we have to have a cultural change where we recognize that there is specialness and magic in all of us. We are not all here just having problems, that even when you are having problems, you have wonderfulness. And we need to find that and count on it and ask you to do something. And everybody needs to contribute. Everybody needs to be asked. Everybody has a responsibility. This is not like oh, everyone is privileged and they have to help the unprivileged. No, everybody has problems. These are universals. We need to take care of one another. That's such a wonderful way to to frame it because I do think that that gets lost a lot, that in a lot of these conversations, it is thought of, of like, okay, let's help other people. But really, that's such a great point to make is it's for the benefit of everyone. Yes. You know, it's a better um, way to live your life. And it's just the truth. I was on a panel with a Black minister in Brooklyn, and her church just happens to be located in an affluent neighborhood. And a lot of her parishioners live in the housing projects nearby. And she said, people always presume that the people in the neighborhood that the church is in have all the things to give. And all the people in the projects are the ones with being in need. And actually, that's just simply not true. And I think we all know that. We just do know that. And we have to get back to that. And I think it's part of the healing that this country has to have. And I think this idea of mutuality is part and parcel of that healing. And that's what we have to be going for. That's so great. Yeah, it's not for the benefit of some, it's for the benefit of all. That's wonderful. Sarah Horowitz, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Have you ever stayed in a job just to maintain your benefits? What would a portable benefit system mean to you? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. 